Welcome back, everyone, to Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. This is the podcast where we take a unique look at the sports industry, sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and on occasion, even serious. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. So tons going on in the sports world, as always. Nadal just won his 14th French Open, 22nd overall Grand Slam. The NBA final series is looking like it could be a classic. We have an exciting series taking shape in the Stanley Cup Eastern Conference Final between the Rangers and Lightning. NASCAR Cup Series raced for the first time at Gateway Motorsports Park near St. Louis. Uh, Speaking of that race, Tim, the number 22 car driven by Team Penske's Joey Logano won that race. It happens to be our 22nd episode, so maybe a little bit of coincidence or more. Absolutely. So hopefully Bubba Wallace and our friend Steve Lillette are listening today because it's our... Uh, for our 23rd when they go to Sonoma next week. That's right. That's right. Road course, Bubba, uh, we'll have to see. Um, But with all that going on, it seems that uh, golf is on uh, everyone's mind. Not that that's that important to me because I want to know what's on your mind. Well, let's let's talk about something we've talked about a little bit in the past. First of all, I'm going to take a sip of my uh, my drink here. It's a it's a Phil Mickelson. It's it's like an Arnold Palmer, but it costs 40 million (laughs) dollars. Uh, let's let's talk live golf. Um, my reference to that is uh, there was an article uh, in today's Daily Mail that was talking about um, Phil Mickelson's interview with Sports Illustrated, where uh, they claimed he had forty million dollars in gambling debt between two thousand ten and two thousand fourteen, and there has been some talk that that's why he's doing this live golf thing. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case. It was really interesting in, in the interview, he said he no longer gambles, but then when he was asked if he gambles on golf, um, he didn't deny it. He said, well, that's competition. Now, as, as somebody who has battled addiction myself, um, there's sort of, there's a school of thought. It's the predominant school of thought that you can't be half pregnant when you have, uh, addictive behaviors, right? You can't pick and choose what, right. what you do. Um, but that's interesting, but more, but, but more importantly to this conversation, uh, Dustin Johnson signing for $125 million. Um, shortly thereafter, his main sponsors, uh, CBC, RBC, or RBC, excuse me, right. RBC, uh, dropped him. But when you're guaranteed $125 million, uh, to play in eight events, uh, you really don't need that those sponsor dollars at that yeah. point. So if, so if Dustin Johnson got 125 million, I, I have not seen the actual number that, that Phil accepted to play on this, but which is by the way, an appearance fee. And for those of you that follow the golf industry, the thing about the PGA tour was that it never gave out appearance fees. Uh, players that wanted to make some extra money, get guaranteed money would go out and play overseas, different tours, different specialty events, and they'd get appearance fees, which was fine. But the tour, never allowed appearance fees because they always talked about it being the ultimate meritocracy. You keep what you earn, you eat what you kill. Um, and they, and people always bragged about it. All these other sports have these guaranteed contracts. Well, here we now have the golfers taking the money. Let's just call it what it is. And whether mm-hmm. Bill has taken it to, uh, to single in a very, <laughs> very quickly wipe out any gambling debts. <laughs> um one would hope yeah or or, or, (laughs) yeah um or doing it because of you know whatever reason uh, you know it just it is seemingly very easy money for not only the top tour pros but other people that that wanted to play and uh, i will hand it to them in that they were relentless we talked about this uh in detail um you know some time ago uh, when we had Norb Gambuza on. And um, at that time, Dustin Johnson had actually said he's committed to the tour. And he's probably, you know, he was just recently the number one player in the world. So this was a big get. Um, but they have other players going over there. I don't think Ricky Fowler has formally announced, but it sounds like he's going to play. Several of these players have already, including Johnson, uh, have resigned from the PGA tour because they didn't want to get into a legal battle with the tour. But um, the USGA has announced that players uh, that qualify will be able to participate in the U S open. And that would include uh, um, Dustin Johnson. And uh, uh, I think Mickelson is qualified, although that is the one major he has never won. 
Um, so uh, uh, fascinating um, development here. Um, they have all towed the line with their messaging that this is just a big opportunity. Uh, DJ saying that it was the best decision for his family, but they are going to continue to have to answer about the um, you know issues that have come up with the human rights record uh, of the Saudis. Um, and, uh, it's not that part of, it's not going to go away. And then the question is, is, will some of these, will sponsors come back in? Will sponsors come from other areas, um, to fill that void? And what is going to be the tour's response now? Cause it is going to have to be stronger than I think, um, we even had, had anticipated originally. Well, I mean, as of right now, you mentioned that they can play in the majors. They are not able to play in the president's cup or the Ryder cup. Right. Um, not sure how important that is to somebody like Mickelson at this point in his career, but to just Dustin Johnson, certainly it's something he's giving up. Um, you know, two names that are that are as of right now not going to commit to live golf. Um, one is Tiger Woods. And again, my source at the Daily Mail said that it was uh, uh, he was turning down five hundred million dollars. Uh, that's been reported in other outlets as well. High nine figures. Um, uh, he also talking about tiger said that, uh, he is not going to play in the U S open, um, but right. he will be playing an event in Ireland as a lead up to the, to the open championship, um, later in July. So it, it, it's interesting, you know, I don't think we'll ever know how much of what, uh, went into tiger's decision was loyalty to the tour, his feelings about human rights abuses, um, certainly as a billionaire, he does not need the money, but even billionaires, um, would notice if $500 million magically appeared in their, their checking account at some point. Um, like I said, I don't think we'll, we'll ever know. No, I, I think you're right, but he obviously would be the big get because he's still the biggest draw on the tour, um, on the U S based tour, uh, for sure. He moves the needle like no one ever has. Um, and most people will say that other than, than, than Arnold Palmer, he has done more for golf and, and yes, that means more for golf than, than even Jack has done. Um, but, uh, I, I do have to say, cause you just said it, you know, I saw the quote from Norman when he didn't say the number. So it's great that you actually got the number, uh, that Tiger was offered because what Greg said was. He was offered in the high nine figures. Now, high nine figures, think about high nine figures could mean anything at a slightly a penny over 500 million to a billion. I'm not very good in math, but I know <laughs> I know that. But that's such a range. I love it when the fact that, you know, we used to do deals and it was like, yeah, it was a low six figure deal or it was a it was a seven figure deal. And now we're in the we're in high nine figures. My, my first job out of college, I told my mother I was making six figures, but you had to add the sense in. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that one of the things I have to say I was bummed to hear about, I don't know if you heard this, but the voice of Live Golf uh, on yeah. the and they're going to be streaming it on on Facebook Live and YouTube and their own <laughs> website that, is Arla that White. Media that media giant right um, and, well Facebook i mean it's gonna, it's, it's, it's gonna be interesting to see if they can capture i mean they've gotten enough attention just on the controversy right yeah if people will tune in to see if it's golf i happen to think there's no money on the line as far as I, the, even though the purses are huge because these guys have already made so much money so you know does it even matter yeah. but arlo white who is also you know he, he's known for doing premier league games that we yep. hear here in the states um but Perhaps more importantly, he is the voice of AFC Richmond yes. on Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso so yeah. it's a, just a voice that just brings comfort. Yeah. Uh, and he's gonna he's he's kind of ditched his those other responses. Hopefully, he'll be back on Ted Lasso in the next season. Anyway, yeah, I mean um, these guys are literally playing with the house's money, the house of Saud. Like you said, I think it's going to be interesting to see what Jay Monahan. Uh, has up his sleeve what he does in conjunction conjunction with the European tour um, over this, uh, you know, coming out of uh, this weekend's event in, in London. So this thing is kicking off. This thing yeah. is kicking off. Yeah. So let's talk about something that uh, we have talked about on several different occasions on this, on the show, uh, our, our friends uh, with the Washington commanders, um, Dan Snyder and commissioner Goodell have been asked to appear in front of the House Oversight Committee um, to talk about a number of issues, including, um, as I read it in the 
the article, A Toxic Work Environment Within the Commander's Organization. Um, it doesn't get better for Mr. Snyder, does it? Well, it, it doesn't, but he has he has brought in some serious Washington clout in terms of a communications team, I understand, meaning his messaging will be there and he'll be talking to um, he'll be talking to legislators that might have um, a like mind uh, to him. And it, this is going to be another of these sports stories that ends up probably getting more political than any of us want it to get. Um, but I think it's probably already there. Um, what was interesting is, is that in, you know, despite the, you know, basically already the report being that the environment was a very toxic one. The thing that seemed to have really caught the owner's attention was when it was reported that he was fudging on the numbers going back to the league. And that's now got everybody up where there was supposedly some owners that were ready to say, okay, let's start taking vote. Let's start, let's start counting votes and seeing if this is a guy we want to be as part of our fraternity here. Um, well, there that's is what some, I was, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. There is some new reporting on that, that they're, you know, depending on what the outcome of that further investigation is, um, you know, there could be some severe penalties to him. And then the question is, is we were, and we, I think had said on a previous episode, um, at least I think I said that I wouldn't be surprised um, that if they ultimately, uh, they just had enough and they, some of the stronger owners or more powerful owners in the league um, make the move to, to, to force him out and basically um, make Roger make the move to, uh, to push him out and say, it's just, it's just not working anymore. Um, that is a huge lift and something that the, that owners don't tend to do. Um, I've had a lot of people when I've said that to them saying, no way, no way that happens. I think we'll have to see if, if anything um, really does come out of this um, uh, withholding story. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be very interesting to see. Um, we like to talk about ratings. We like to talk about numbers on this show. NBA uh, game one was the least watched NBA finals game. And it was a phenomenal game. Right. Um, since 2007, fewer than 12 million people um, tuned in. You're the guy who follows the ratings. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I, I was surprised because the overall playoff numbers appeared pretty good. People were generally tuning in, and they and they. I was hearing reports that they were up. The finals is the finals, though. When you have two big time teams, you have the team with, you know, the biggest star in the game, and in, in, in Steph Curry. And you have Boston, one of the legendary uh, franchises in the league, uh, going for a, a championship that they have not been in for quite a while uh, when they used to be in it quite regularly and a, a city that obviously is just sports crazy uh, at, like Boston. So I was surprised to hear that. We'll see kind of how it how it evolves if the games get the second game was a bit of a blowout. Um, and I think they struggled in uh, with that number as well. So we'll see if that picks up. Uh, we'll see if we're at a at a new norm when it comes to this, or that there's a certain peak um, uh, with NBA viewership that we're already getting at the uh, uh, at the playoff level. Uh, that's not going to spike all that much at the uh, uh, at the finals level. But um, you know, the NBA has always done a great job of of showcasing their stars, and Curry is as big a star in the game as there is. Uh, Jason Tatum, uh, the uh, the young Celtic star, is one of the big stars up and coming. I mean, a phenomenal player um, to watch play. So uh, the teams <laughs> teams are both really good and they're fighting hard. So the games are, are even though it was a blowout in the, in the second one or a bit of a blowout, um, I mean, these teams are fighting hard. So the games are good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tune in and, and we'll have to watch. But I, I was a little surprised coming off what I had seen in the playoffs. Yeah, it certainly has the possibility, the potential of, being, you know, uh, one for the ages, as Bruce Beck likes to say, right? Um, you know, notwithstanding the second game. Yeah, we'll um, uh, we'll have to we'll have to check. You know, we're Tim. We're both sports marketing guys, so we've done a lot of we've done a lot of deals in our time, and mm -hmm. some of those deals have to do with placing signage at big events. So I, I just got a kick. I, I watched the um, I watched the French Open because I wanted to uh, both the women's because I really wanted to see Coco Golf play in the women's final on 
um, on Saturday and then, um, and then see if uh, Rafa can uh, win another uh, championship uh, title at Roland Garros, which he of course did. Um, but one of the things that seemed to strike people during this broadcast was a, a very oddly placed um, virtual sign on the baseline that would just appear <laughs> from time to time. Now, before I reveal who it is, I'm going to say that this is a brand that I absolutely love and I will have a hard time walking by one of their stores, restaurants, if I, if I walk by it and I'm even close to being hungry. And that's Jersey Mike's, <laughs> by the way. It's a great franchise that does a ton of great stuff for charity, by the way. And their overall sponsorship program, I, I think, is is pretty great. This just seemed like an uh, an odd thing to the point of like, was this a was this an odd make good? That, that was my thought. Yeah. yeah. And it's not that you know what the brand. A lot of people were all over it for the brand fit with a tennis event when you've got Rolex here and mm-hmm. and all these other all these other super luxury brands, and then a Jersey Mike's logo just appearing on the clay but then disappearing on the clay when it wasn't it just it was like a weird execution of a virtual sign and uh-huh. you know we talked to we talked to uh keith wachtel last week about what they're planning on doing with the uh, nhl dasher board and we're assuming it's not going to be what we saw on this broadcast <laughs> well you know maybe we should call our friends at nbc and suggest they change it from breakfast at wimbledon to uh uh, subs at Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Mike's way. Um, <laughs> Dame, those are good sandwiches, though. <laughs> so they are, and our, like friends said, at, our friends at Jersey Mike's, we love your sandwiches. Yes, and we love, and you, you pointed it out, every year they give their uh, their revenue one day from every store to charity. That's incredible. It's uh, Peter Cancro, the CEO there. It, it's one of the coolest things I've seen a, a corporation do. And, and they, for the most part, are still a challenger brand in both the sub place and the, and the QSR overall sandwich space. And they've hustled their butt off um, uh, and grown. And that, and that, ch- that day of charity is, is one of the cooler things uh, I've seen a, a company do. It's really spectacular. So great yeah. job on that. Hey, before we cut away... Um, to break. There's one thing I I do want to say. I want to give a shout out to a guy that for someone like me that opened his career in the sports information space. Mm -hmm. um, I owe this guy a major debt of gratitude. Roger Valdeseri, the legendary SID from Notre Dame, passed away last week uh, at the age of 95. Uh, And as his son and good friend of mine, Tom Valdeseri, said he, Raj had a great run. Everyone called him Raj. Um, and he was, he was, he was the guy along with my former boss, uh, Marvin Skeeter Francis, the media relations chief at the ACC really kind of, in my opinion, defined what a modern day SID was to be. Uh, and for those that don't know, he was the one that told Joe Theismann to pronounce his last name Theismann instead of Theismann. So he can make a run for the Heisman. Uh, and even, and, and all of the Theismans now are known as Theismans and Joe Theismann credits Roger for all of that. Uh, he survived by, by five kids, three of whom I've happened to know, Kenny, uh, Tom, and Kathy, all of whom have touched the sports industry, um, and obviously a brood of grandkids, but just an unbelievable guy. And I, I just wanted to give a shout out to, to uh, his, his surviving family and uh, just life well lived. And uh, um, if you ever watch the movie Rudy, Watch at the end, and when they're crowding to carry him off, there is someone wearing a jersey with the name Valdisari on it. Because Ro- that movie never would have been made without without Roger being very, very involved in it, which I thought was very cool. That's a great story, and he sounds like a remarkable man. So I think um, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. I'm going to come right back with a very special guest. It's time for our guest. Welcome back. We are really happy to have our next guest, somebody I've known for quite some time. Uh, he won 21 times in NASCAR Cup Series, uh, racing for Roush Fenway and Richard Childress Racing. Uh, he, for the last several years, has been one of the color analysts on NBC's coverage of NASCAR. We are really happy to have Jeff Burton. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Glad to join. Oh. Let's get started here, Jeff. Um, what a t- 
we're really happy to have you on the show. We want to talk about your son. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you were driving, when you were driving, man. you used to have to ask answer questions about your brother. Now you got to answer questions about your son. But seriously, um, you know, you, you came up in the sport in the mid '90s. You know, or early '90s. Your son, thirty years later, a, a, literally a generation later. What are some of the things you're seeing that he's dealing with um, as a NASCAR driver? that you didn't, you didn't have to deal with uh, when you were coming up in his position? That's a great question. Uh, you know, every sport changes, and, and technology has really had an influence in every sport. If you think about uh, how, how uh, athletes train today versus how they trained 30 years ago, it's a completely different environment, even to the point where 30 years ago, uh, I think, Tim, it's fair to say that a lot of drivers weren't even training. Like, it was, like, kind of an optional thing. And now – uh, these drivers, they really, I compare them to uh, NFL quarterbacks because the amount of film study that they do, the amount of planning they do, the amount of time they spend in the simulators, uh, the manufacturers, Toyota, Chevrolet, Ford, have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars creating simulators so drivers can sit in a simulated race car before showing up to the racetrack. There's things like that that we didn't even consider I mean, think about we had we had Frogger, right? We didn't have, <laughs> we, you know, we didn't have this incredible amount of technology. So that technology has created an opportunity for drivers to spend an exorbitant amount of time preparing for the upcoming race. We put the VHS in and watched the replay of the race, and we sat down and had a meeting with our team. Now you have all the data pouring out of the car that you can compare you and another driver. Like, it's just, it's endless. And so you almost can never be as prepared if you just spend another hour. And that is completely different than what we had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the first time he shows up at the track, he will have gone through it in a simulator as many times as he wants to, right? So Well, to the point, I mean, you know, you've got, you know, Ford has however many drivers they have, so they have to split that time up amongst right. those drivers. And they also they have Xfinity cars and truck teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they have access to that simulator too. Now, Cup gets priority. And if, you know, if, a, if an Xfinity guy wants to get in there or an Xfinity team wants to get in there and a Cup team wants to, well, Cup wins. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and it is a great advancement, but if everybody has it, what's the advantage? Good point. Right. So if everybody can can use a simulator and everybody can access that technology, how do you use it to your advantage? That's the thing that in every sport, you know, if every team has the same every team has access to the same quarterback, how do you find a way to win? Right. And that's mm-hmm. that's the difficult part about technology. You know, you talked about um, watching watching videos. I, I think of all the times I was in the McDonald's hall or visiting with Bill. I the only thing I actually saw on was Stroker Ace. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how many times I watched that, but he watched it at least a million times more than I did. Slide Torkel's chicken pit, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the the. NASCAR seems to be having a, a pretty solid year. A lot of people in the industry might say it's a bit of a bounce back year. Some popularity has increased. You're inside it all the time, so it might look a little different. But from your perspective, what what things are happening that you would attribute to this kind of leap again in the in this interest in the sport? Well, I think you know, I think that I don't, I don't think we can dismiss the amount of effort that went into getting racing back on track. <laughs> you know, in the early parts of COVID. Um, That introduced the sport to some people because they were home and they're like, hey, there's a live sporting event on, let's check it out. And the sport started building and building some momentum. And then this year, there's there's an entirely brand new car design. It's never before in the history of NASCAR has there been this big of a change. And that car has created the opportunity for more people to be successful. But more importantly than that, for racing to be really compelling, fun to watch. You don't know what's going to happen. We, I think we've only had three repeat winners this year. So it's very un- – It's you don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to say it's unorganized, but it's, it's a bit chaotic. 
And that's what fans want to see. They want to see uh, drivers having to drive hard. They want to see drivers, because the car is hard to drive, make mistakes, uh, spin out, hit the wall. They don't want to see anybody get hurt, but re- wrecking's part of the sport. It just is. And, and so we've got all that intrigue. And when people tune in to watch a race this year, it's fun. It's fun to go to. Uh, or, I, it's been a long time since I've seen as many people at the racetrack as what we have today. We've had a lot of sellouts this year. Uh, TV numbers are way up from last year. So I think the main thing is we've built some energy, you know, during COVID. But but now with this new car, uh, the quality of racing is through the roof. Yeah. If, if you were running NASCAR for a day, what would you do at this point to continue to grow the sport, to continue on that upward trajectory? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just cash a paycheck, right? <laughs> well, so look, here's the thing. You you have to be careful. You have to be careful to not keep changing things, right? You have to change things when it's a good time to change. But every time you change something, it's something that the fans have to learn new. And, you know, you really don't see that in other sports. And we've gone through, uh, uh, in our recent history, we've changed a lot of things to the point where if you watched racing 20 years ago and you tuned in a race now, you'd have to be explained how points are awarded and that kind of thing enough. Like, it works the way it is. Uh, don't change any of that. The, the one thing we need to do that we are already doing, right, is it's important for us to go to different racetracks. You know, we did, ran the L.A. Coliseum. Who in the hell thought? You could run the L.A. Coliseum, right? We ran a race in the L.A. Coliseum, and it was magic. It was great, and it showed this industry that you don't have to have a permanent facility, right? So get innovative. Be explorative. Try things like that, but have a core. Have a core of who you are. This is who we are. This is what we're going to be, and we're going to branch off that in some ways, but always be true to who you are. And I think if you do that over the long term, that's how you keep fans and that's how you grow fans. Yeah, great point. We were fascinated uh, by the um, by the race at the Coliseum in L.A. Uh, to kick things off this season. I thought that was I thought that was a great move by the sport and, and everybody involved. So you guys take over broadcast coming up in a couple of weeks at Nashville. Great city to start for you. Um, anything we can expect from NBC that's kind of, you know, like you were talking about taking this sport in different ways, things that, the things that fans could look for, uh, on the broadcast. Well, I think initially, you know, we take it over from Fox. Fox has the first half of the year and NBC has the second half of the year. Um, we're going to look a lot like we, we have in the past. We, we, we are really comfortable with what we do. We, we, we work hard, uh, to answer the question why that's my job. Like I, I, you know, why is this happening? And we're going to double down on that. Um, you know, we, I, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of crazy new things. We're going to reintroduce the, uh, some, some special things that I can't talk about just yet, but we, you know, the booth, the four guys in the booth, Dale Jr., Steve Latart, Rick Allen, and myself, we're really in a good sync. We're really in a good flow. Uh, the way we interact with, with all the pit road reporters works really well. The way we interact with the, the truck, uh, works really, really well as far as how we produce the races. So we're going to, we're going to double down on that. I mean, we're not going to change a whole lot. We feel like it works. Okay. I can't wait to see it. I can't, uh, you know, I, I love you guys in the booth. Um, when, when you're in the booth, um, you know, what, what are you thinking about in terms of keeping the fans engaged? You know, if it's, if it's not the most exciting race or maybe it is the most exciting race or are you thinking about, um, an average race fan? Are you thinking about somebody who's never tuned into a race before? Or are you thinking about that that gearhead who knows everything about the cars? Who who are you who are you talking to? From you know that's a that's a great point, and and we try to talk to all of them. You know, it's it's um, we can't assume that everyone watching the race watches every lap of every race, but we can't talk down to the guy that does, and so. It's a fine line that we walk. It's, I think the most important thing for our fans is to make sure they understand exactly what's going on. They understand the rules. We can explain what happened and why it happened when something comes up. And we don't, you know, because, 
you can make a rule for whatever you want to make a rule, but something strange is going to happen. It all the time happens. We then go directly to NASCAR. Hey, why did, what, what happened here? They give us a direct answer so we can report that to the fans. And, the, and if there's 36 cars on the track, then there's 36 stories. And we have to do a better job of telling all those stories. And if we do that, and if we simply answer the question why and what, it, then it's easy broadcast. And, and not every race is compelling, right? Not every football game, basketball game is compelling. And that's when we really got to go to work. That's when we really got to push ourselves and go find those stories. But they're there. We just have to be paying attention. We can't get tunnel vision and only look at the first eight, nine, ten cars. We got to be looking, be willing to look deeper in the field because, remember, this sport is like no other in that if you're watching a football game, every play, your team's on the television. Basketball, your team is on the television. Baseball, your team is on the television. Golf, you don't see every shot live, but they go back and they show what happened, right? All of our guys are on track at the same time, and but it's not two. It's 36. So it's hard to show all those. And when we get in those races where we – we don't have like this major fight for the lead. That doesn't mean there's not great racing. We got to go back and find it. It might be for sixth, seventh, eighth place. And I want to tell you, like if you watch the guys running for 20th, it's a dog fight back there. It's like Top Gun <laughs> fighter jets going at you. I mean, it's nuts how hard they race back there. So there's always a good race. There's always interesting stories. There's always something going on. We just have to push ourselves to make sure it gets told. Yeah, and the drama that is, you know, the, these these drivers, and obviously you spent a big part of your career doing that. You're you're in that car. It's a it's a dangerous job that you have, uh, and that drama and the emotion that gets there. And you guys do a great job of capturing that, and obviously showing those visuals that when people get out of the car, I mean, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's heated. Uh, and it's been nice to kind of let the drivers tell their story. That's one of the things I've noticed this year. Uh, but nobody's really, really crossed that line, which is, um, which is great. You know, before we got, uh, before we actually joined, had you join the show, um, Tim was telling a great story about you as a brand ambassador during his time at, at Singular. And that's, a, that's a credit to you. And he and I have both had the uh, opportunity as sports marketing people to work with, with, with drivers, uh, that have gotten the importance of that. It's another thing that makes NASCAR unique, right? Is this is the is the brand involvement and what it means to fielding those teams? What would you say? I mean, even though your job now is is in the booth, makes sports marketing involvement those brands that support this sport. Uh, why is that important? You know, for the drivers and the fans and everybody to accept uh, their importance. So, I, I guess I'd I'd like you to comment on on kind of that aspect that makes NASCAR unique. Well, it is very unique in how we, you know, in our sport, we are very out front and we are promoting a product. We are, we, it is a marketing opportunity for whomever it is on that car. And we've seen other sports start to do that with, you know, logos on jerseys, but nothing compared to what we do. And um, quite simply, it's a very effective marketing tool. And if you, if you are a driver, you need to take a step back and recognize that what you want to do and what you love to do is made possible because it is a marketing opportunity. And that's if you if once you get into that mindset and once you understand that and you embrace that, um, it's really fun because now you are helping you are helping this entire group of people. You're not just racing for your team. You're racing for everybody that is with that company. And they're, they are, it's their car. That's how I view it. Like it was Singular's car. It was, it was Exide's car. It was their car. And we're out there trying to represent them the best way that we can. The best way we can do that is go win races and conduct yourself the way you should. Yeah. And if you embrace that, and it's fun. It, it, it's, it's just a lot of fun. But, but it, it makes the business of NASCAR work. It just does. We can't – you just can't do it off of race winnings. And, and 
we the business side of it, you have to have sponsorship. You just do. Um, and that's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. And the reason it's okay, because it's an effective marketing tool. Yeah, that that's, you know, what I have always said, that racing is more than most sports. It addresses the needs of both the fans and the sponsors very well, in that there's, a, there's just a mutual need there to interact. The fans obviously want to see those, those cars out and be competitive as much as possible. They want to see them out at appearances and that's the sponsor making those things happen. Um, and the fans are very, very receptive to all that messaging, whether it's on the midway uh, and various sponsor activations. It's just, it's just one where that uh, intersection of the needs just works really, really well. Well, you make a great point and you know, the sport has grown exponentially over the last 50 years because of the sponsor interaction. It's not just that the, the sponsors help a particular team, a particular driver. Sponsors help the, when a sponsor gets involved with, you know, the, the six car, he's not only involved in the six car, he's involved in the entire sport because they promote the sport, they market the sport, and they help grow the sport. They help bring new fans in it. So it's very much um, the sport and the sponsors working together because they both, they kind of have, you know, the sport, the NASCAR, the drivers, the teams, and the sponsors, they kind of all have the same goals. Right. We want as many people watching a race as we can get. We want as many people at the race as we can get because that's how we get interaction. And it really... You know, I wish other athletes had the accountability to a city, a sponsor. Like, I, when I drove, I was held accountable by our marketing partners. And I greatly benefited by that because it helped me with structure. It helped me be a responsible human being while being this idiot with a helmet on going to try to do <laughs> selfish, like super selfish stuff, right? Like when you're competing, it's okay to be self-centered. It's okay to be a bit of an ass. It's, it's okay. But when you take that helmet off, you have to have a split personality. And the sponsorship helped me with that. It helped right. me build those. And, and if I feel like if other athletes had that, where they were held accountable by someone outside of their team, it would be great for them because it's, it centers you and it makes you understand that, Hey, we lost this game, but not all is lost. Right. We got this other thing that we're trying to accomplish. And, and I just think it, it really was good for me. And it's been good for my son uh, to have someone else to answer to other than just the guy that's writing your check for, for being an athlete. Yeah, I, I, I've been doing this a long time, and that's probably one of the most uh, comprehensive and well-thought-out descriptions of, of the symbiosis between athletes, sponsors, and fans, And which which isn't surprising. And, and I'm going to ask you a question that I've always wanted to ask you, Jeff. The conventional wisdom when you were getting ready to retire was that you were you were trying to decide between running for office – and doing what you're doing now, which is in the, in the booth, right? And we all know why you're in the booth, because you do a great job up there. But did you ever give serious thought to running for public office? <laughs> um, I did. Um, I, had some, I had some conversations with some people pretty, pretty high up in, in politics and uh, quickly realized that wasn't going to work for me. And, and now... I look at it and I'm like, thank God, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't do that. Um, and when I was talking about that, I didn't have these opportunities that I, that TV provided, right? I, it wasn't an option. If you came to me and said, hey, you can, um, you can do television and stay involved in the sport or you can go do, be involved in politics, I'd have picked staying involved in the sport every time. Um, Tim, I, I, at the same time, I want to serve my community. Like I didn't serve in the military. I went straight from high school to trying to find a way to be a professional race car driver. I didn't serve my community. And I do and did want to find a way to do that, which, you know, kind of led me to, you know, when a group of drivers wanted to start a driver's council to have 
you know, a little more representation, they came to me and asked me if I do it. And I said, yes, because now I get to help serve my community because this, the NASCAR is my community, right. right. And trying to build that relationship better between NASCAR, uh, television, the tracks, the drivers, like that's a long-term reward. Uh, although it's not any financial reward, it's a reward and serve in my community. So, um, so I have found a way, or I've been I've been given an opportunity to find a way to to do both, and I'm I'm extremely blessed for that. That's great. That's great. Hey, I I have to ask um, something for for those of you that um, are are listening. Jeff has behind him, and we're not seeing all of it, but 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 trophies and cooler some some killer ones. And because I grew up outside of Philadelphia, I'm particularly partial to the Monster Mile uh, trophy. And can you like? Can you at all move your camera to the to the <laughs> so to show the, that a little actually, better? Because I love that. Trophy. Well, that's actually the uh, that's actually the Xfinity okay. monster. Uh, and there's Still another a monster one. man. There's another Xfinity oh, monster. Yeah. But there's the there's the yes. Yeah, that's the that's the Cup monster trophy. But funny story on that one. That one's actually a um, replica. My wife. I don't know how if it works like this in your houses, but my <laughs> wife every now and then decides that she doesn't like things the way they are. And <laughs> she decided to uh, start moving some things and she picked up that trophy. Now that thing's heavy. My wife weighs a hundred pounds, maybe weighs a hundred pounds and she tripped and fell with it and she fell on top of it. It broke three of her ribs. Oh, geez. It, it busted the floor in here. And it just and it busted the miles. It busted miles all to pieces. So that's actually a replica of. Oh wow! Of wow! Chunk. That's how. Yeah. That's how tough Kim is. It broke that's, her ribs, but it destroyed the. Yeah, absolutely, the <laughs> absolutely. So, so a couple quick questions before we let you go. Uh, you've you've got uh, you've got a UNC fan, and you've got a a, a Demon Deacons alum. What's next for Duke basketball? For those of you who don't know, Jeff is a huge Duke basketball fan. Obnoxiously so. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, who knows? I mean, you're taking one of the, you know, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And, and um, you know, whenever somebody like that leaves, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, they've done a, incredible job of recruiting yeah that hadn't missed a beat um it'll, it's going to be interesting to watch i mean i i i i think it's going to be really interesting to watch i if, if they can be successful these first two or three years then that recruiting train will keep going and as you guys all know i mean but it's so interesting college basketball is so interesting to me right now um that has that game has changed so much um you know, I, I long for the days where Danny Ferry and, you know, Christian Leitner and all the, you know, they'd stayed, yep. you know, I mean, think how long Michael Jordan stayed at UNC Three and you years. got to know them, you know, yeah. and you, you watch them grow up as athletes and as people. And it's, it's, um, and don't get me wrong. I, I think, I, I think they should be able to leave high school and go play pro ball. I mean, if you, if, if I left high school and wanted a job and decided I want, I, sh I should be able to do whatever yeah, the hell yeah, I want yeah. to. Like, I, I think it's crazy that you can't do that. But uh, having said that, I wish, I wish you could find a way to do both. I wish we could right. keep that college athlete playing longer. Uh, but I don't know how you do both because they deserve, if they get an opportunity, I mean, why do you go to college to position yourself to get a better job? Right. So if you if you go to college and get an opportunity to go play NBA, like go do it. Like you should not be held back from doing that. Yeah. That might be one of the benefits of NIL, right? If a kid makes enough money and, and sees what, what the experience playing in college is like, they may be, they may be tempted to stay longer. I don't know, but I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Really though. Curious. I love, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm really curious how, how we just, college basketball doesn't just end up in some kind of bidding war and just yep. whoever can offer the best deal financially for a player at that point what's the point we talk about that subject on this podcast quite a bit 
Uh, not that we have any actual answers, but we can talk about it. I guess we should think about answers. Well, the Ohio State football coach said he needed another $13 yeah. million dollars a year in order to remain I, competitive. Yeah, I, I think so. That's not going things... to academic advisor. So before we let you go, one last question, Jeff. Um, somewhat serious, but not really. Kim, who we talked about before, used to get extremely nervous when you when you were racing. And as most NASCAR spouses would, at least the ones who – like their husbands. Um, <laughs> does she get more nervous when Harrison gets behind the wheel? Oh, Lord, yes. Yeah, um, that's what I thought. Yeah. I, you know, listen, I, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing more precious than the love of a mom. I mean, you know, thank God for moms. And um, yeah, like, and, and, you know, my wife is, she just, I don't mean this in a bad way. She just doesn't care what you think. Like she, she's <laughs> going to show her emotion. Yeah. And if you don't like that, then don't watch. I mean, you know, she's just comfortable with herself and, and um, yeah. And so, yeah, she's more nervous. She's, you know, I always said that the reason she was not so nervous when I was racing, cause she knew me well enough to know I was probably going to screw it up. <laughs> and with her son, she's pretty sure somebody's going to mess him up. <laughs> Yeah. A, different, a different perspective but but yeah she's you know i, I think that's normal i i would um you know we we talk a lot about it as parents especially when they were younger and if there's a choice to be made of spending time with me or me spending time with her versus spending time with the kids kids win every time and that was just our priority and 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 that's how it should be you know if harrison and i were racing against each other i would expect her to pull for him i mean that's mm -hmm. just you know, kids, kids, uh, it's just hard to beat. It's hard to beat the love of a child, right? Well, that might be the next, uh, that might not be the next racing series, right? No, father, not, father, not son racing series. You've raced on a me. team with Harrison. That's not me. I'm done. I'm done with that. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, speaking of being done, we're, we're done with this interview and we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day. I'm sure you're busy with production meetings, getting ready for the, the start of the season on NBC. So first of all, thank you. Uh, second of all, good luck and have a, have a great season. I know it's a lot safer in the booth, but uh, hopefully it's, it's almost as much fun. Yes, it is as much fun. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thank you. Thank you again to our guest, uh, NASCAR analyst on NBC, former Cup Series driver Jeff Burton. Um, always fun to have great guests. And, and uh, David, it just seems like we, we our guests just get better and better every week. And that's not a knock on our early guests because they were fantastic too. But we've just been so, so fortunate with the guests we have here. But now's the time in the show where we look forward a little bit. So uh, what are you looking forward to over the next week or so? Well, there's a, a couple things. I'm excited to have an outing with you uh, to the garden to watch the Rangers uh, host the Lightning in uh, what will be game five of the Eastern Conference Finals there for the Stanley Cup playoffs. So uh, um, it'll be, be good. You know, we do yeah. see each other every once in a while, but it's uh, it's too yeah. infrequent. And we've... We're like Boomer and Geo. We'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll be together in person at a Rangers game. But um, that series, which is which is – 2-1 as we speak, um, uh, has a chance to be a really, really good series. And obviously, one of those teams will move on to play the Avalanche in the Stanley Cup final. So I am looking forward to that. Uh, and listen, I, I think the the story for the sports biz is big enough. I, I am going to have my eye on what's happening. I'm, I'm very curious to see what the production value on the Live Golf is going to be, uh, what they're doing differently. Um, and, and then obviously, you know, look at the reviews and, and see how many people are tuned into, uh, to streaming us. I, I think that, you know, three months ago, I might not have been saying that, but I think there have been enough movements, uh, in this to at least garner, uh, pretty serious attention from the, from the media, which, you know, in our business means that, um, we need to have an eye on that to see what the, what the traction is and, and what it's going to end up meaning for the, for the tour. What about you? Well, I want to see if Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida likes to pull the wings off of butterflies or 
take uh, take candy from kids that he sees. Wait, out what? Of- what did he do now? <laughs> well, you know, he uh, he took away uh, Disney's tax break, right? Uh, because they spoke out. <laughs> Uh, he then uh, vetoed a bill that was going to provide funding to the Tampa Bay Rays uh, for a practice facility. Um, but most egregiously, he threatened the Special Olympics, which are holding their their games down in Florida, with uh, something like a $27.5 million fine if they wanted to um, enact uh, vaccination requirements for, for staff and athletes and coaches and so forth. And, um, you know, uh, these, these kids, uh, they just want to compete, first of all. Second of all, many of them who have um, disabilities have underlying medical conditions as well, where they would be well served by being as protected as they can be um, from COVID, which, despite what many people think, has not gone away. So, um I, I just, I, I just, he's been so heavy handed, but that struck me as particularly callous. So there's a state law that says you could have no mandate. And so he was, he was using that as the reason that he would fine him, but that was telling a private company they couldn't have rules to protect their participants. Yeah. And, this, so, this, and, and, uh, and they were already gathered and down there, right? So there was no way or plan. So it wasn't like they, so they had to capitulate. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, and uh, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, so, we, we've, we've gone on long enough with this episode. So, so I'll, I'll bite my tongue now. <laughs> so we won't go into the reason why they shut the, tr- the raised training facility down. I, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a topic for another episode, right? Yeah. yeah so, but uh, it is time to say goodbye. Um, we, we thank all of you who listened to this. Um, we truly appreciate it. If you comment, if you share, if you like, we appreciate it even more. So until next week, um, he's DP, I'm McGee, and we will see you then. Thanks.